Okay. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Uh, we're beginning our second half of School of the Bible. So we're done with the New Te- the Old Testament. We're about to do the New Testament. Um, but before we get into the New Testament, we have a session dedicated to understanding the intertestamental period, right? So this is the period between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What happens then? There's 400 years uh, between the last of the prophets and the coming of Christ. So this session is dedicated to understanding what's going on there. So it's interesting because this is going to be a Bible study where you don't need a Bible, where you don't need a Bible, right? Um, because we're actually going to be talking about some other things. So as usual, if you guys have any questions, uh, don't hesitate. Just shout and then we'll stop and we'll try to answer them. And if anyone has a comment, anything that they think might be helpful, please feel free to also speak up, right? So, why are we having this session, right? And why are we having a session about this period? So, the goal of this lesson is to set the tone for the New Testament and help you and I understand the culture at the time. So, the culture that the Lord Jesus comes into and the one in which the apostles write their letters So this will hopefully be helpful in showing us how God is in control. He's in control of everything and how he prepares a way for the coming of Christ. So we will look at what happened in in the 400 years geographically, politically, and culturally, right? So at the end of the Old Testament, we have the prophet Malachi around the year 420 BC. And that's it. That's the end of divine revelation until John the Baptist arrives. So you have 400 years of silence in terms of biblical events. Does that mean God was silent and doing nothing? No, God is still working. And we'll see how the Lord was at work even during this period. Even today, scripture is complete, right? Scripture is not being written, but God is at work still. So here God is organizing and preparing everything for the arrival of his son. And there are political changes there are philosophical changes and there are changes within Judaism, within the nation of the Jews that's happening. Uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you don't find them in the Old Testament, right? Where do they come from? Uh, the Roman Empire at the time of Christ is in charge. How did that come about? So this session will hopefully answer those questions. Um, so at the end of the Old Testament, right, the Medo-Persian Empire is in charge. They are the superpower. Remember the book of Daniel? Daniel had a vision of the kingdoms, the four kingdoms. The first one was the Babylonians, and the second was the Medo-Persians. And that leaves us with two more kingdoms that are still going to arise, right? So which ones are they? It's the Greek and then the Romans. So if you want to go back to that book, it's in chapter 8 and 11, where it speaks of the coming kingdoms. And so the next kingdom that's going to arise is the Greek kingdom led by Alexander the Great. So Alexander is the son of Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon conquers and unites the whole of Greece, right? So before Greece was kind of separated and then uh, uh, Philip brings it together into one nation. And so Alexander the Great, uh, he's the son of uh, Philip of Macedon and He takes over from his father in the year 336 BC. So this is around 60 to 100 years after the book of Malachi. Alexander the Great wants to conquer the Medo-Persian Empire, right? That is his dream, his desire. 
And so he starts to invade and he begins taking control of certain regions belonging to that empire, including the land of Israel. So he also conquers the land of Israel. He just conquers. He even goes into Egypt, right? He conquers many other places. Some of the places that he went to, he didn't even have to fight. The people welcomed him as a liberator and they allowed Alexander to take over because the Medo-Persians were, were, were very cruel, right? They were very cruel people. And so they were open to anyone else to take over, right? They didn't even resist him. So his empire expanded rapidly. In Egypt, he was deified. They made him a god. So in Greece, there were these prophecies about him that he was a god. And he started to believe them himself. In Egypt, he built a city and he called it Alexandria, right? You might have heard of Alexandria in Egypt. And there were actually many cities that he named after himself, over 70 of them. Uh, the one in Egypt is the most famous, the most well-known. And the city ends up becoming important in biblical hermeneutics. It's where we find the Alexandrian school of interpretation. So Alexander pumped a lot of money into Alexandria, right? He invested a lot in it. It was a beautiful city uh, and a huge library was built there. It's one of the largest in the world at the time. And then Alexander moves north. He moves north from Egypt and he comes to conquer the Medo-Persian Medo Empire directly, which is under the rule of a guy named Darius. So Darius is defeated by Alexander and then he flees. He starts to run. He flees to the city of Babylon. Um, and, but Alexander chases him and he conquers Babylon. So Darius then flees down to another city uh, called Persepolis, also in the Medo-Persian Empire. Alexander gets there and he destroys that city and he burns the temples down. And it was humiliating for the Persians. Even today, when you talk about Alexander the Great in Persia, so today Persia is where Iran and Iraq are, they call him the devil. That is what they call Alexander. And there's mythical stories about him having two horns growing out of his head because they hate him. They hate him because it was their empire that he took down. So Darius runs away even further. And eventually his own men, they kill him because they think, maybe if we get rid of you, then Alexander and his men will stop chasing and destroying, and destroying our empire, right? They'll stop chasing us. But Alexander continues pursuing, right? He wants to completely wipe them out. He wants to eradicate them. He continues to conquer lands all the way up to India. So his empire stretched all the way up to India and, and he, he pretty much conquers all of the, the, the known world within a very short space of time. So in the year 330 BC, he assumes the title the great king of Persia because now he's completely taken over Persia. But then three years later, in 327 BC, he dies. So in about six years, he conquers all of the known world. And remembers, remember Daniel's picture of the Greek empire in the book of Daniel? The, the animal given uh, that's used to describe the, the empire is a leopard, right? And a leopard implies speed. The speed of this empire will be something to behold. It's amazing. So Alexander conquers from Greece to India. And what he does during this time of conquering is known as Hellenization. So Hellenization is bringing Greek or Hellenic culture to all of these areas. And Alexander was a student of Greek philosophers. So in, in ancient Greece, there were three very well-known philosophers who changed the world, right? They shaped Western civilization, even, even to today. First came Socrates, and Socrates had his teachings and his writings. And Socrates had a star pupil whose name was Plato. 
And Plato had his own academy where he taught. And Plato's, Plato's star pupil was Aristotle. And Aristotle's most famous student was Alexander the Great. So like Aristotle, Alexander was an educated man, right? He wasn't just a warrior. He wasn't just uh, an army general. He was an educated man and he brought Greek culture to everyone that he conquered. So he wouldn't just go in and kill people. What he would do is he would get some of his men to intermarry with the nobility, with the elites of each city and, and nation and kingdom. So he even traveled with scientists and philosophers in his army entourage. So he'd get there and then he'd, he'd colonize, he'd shape the culture, he'd force people uh, to do things the Greek way, right? So in that way, he would spread Greek culture, Greek tradition, and the Greek language, right? People were forced to speak the Greek, the Greek language. And so that's the important thing that we're going to focus on. It's the Greek language, right? It began to, it began to spread all over the world, even into Italy, where Rome is. And the Romans loved Greek culture. So they loved Greek culture. They were fans of it. And you can see it in the Roman mythology and the Roman gods. All the Romans did was they took the Greek gods and they gave them their own names. So you've heard of Zeus. Zeus was called uh, Jupiter by the Romans, right? The Greeks have Eros. The Romans called him Cupid. Uh, Artemis, they called Diana. So they changed the names, but they kept the core of the Greek mythology. So why is the Greek language, why is it spread at this time important for us? So I'm actually going to ask that question to you guys and, and see if, if anyone can uh, guess the answer. Why is the spread of the Greek language significant for us? Anyone? Okay. My, my, own, my own brother sitting here would like to answer. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty important because if we look at, you know, the, one of the biggest languages today, English, a lot of, I think, a lot of uh, words, a lot of the, the, the base of some, or a lot of words that we use in English today pretty much come from Greek, you know, and maybe we, we wouldn't have those words or, okay. you know, without. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I don't know if you heard that. Kind of on the right track, but uh, uh, Miss Ibiya here actually has the answer. It's because, because of the fact that the New Testament was written in which language? It was written in Greek, right? Um, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Greek language had spread all over the world. So when Jesus arrives... Sorry, let me mute this person. So when Jesus arrives... And when the Gospels and the Epistles are written, the way is already prepared for, this, for the Gospel to spread like wildfire. If you read the book of Acts, it's within 30 to 40 years, and the Gospel is already gone to the ends of the earth as they knew it, right? You know what happens today with missionaries? Um, a missionary will go to a remote place with a tribe in the jungle somewhere, right? That missionary will find 200 people with their own language. He will spend years and years, even decades, trying to learn their language. After learning their language, then they'll put the language down in a written form. And then only will they begin to translate the Bible into that language form. The missionary still has to teach the people how to read. right? So it would take half a lifetime, sometimes a whole lifetime, to get the gospel to a people group. There's a country called Bolivia in South America, and it has... 
37 official languages, right? 37. Imagine if you're trying to spread the gospel in Bolivia and you had to do that for every single language. We'd still be waiting for the gospel to reach us today. So you can see how God had prepared the way for, this, for the gospel to spread like wildfire, right? All the known world is able to speak and to read Greek. And so that is the language in which God writes the New Testament in. So Alexander the Great, in his arrogance and pride, he thinks he's working for himself. Little does, little does he realize that he's working for God and he's setting up preparation for the gospel to spread easily and quickly across the world at that time. It's great to see God's providence. And remember, you and I have to see history like that. We don't take, we don't take our Christian hat off when it comes to history. We read Christians, oh, sorry, we read, we read history as Christians and God is in control of all history. What is God's focus on in the world as he looks down right now? What is his focus? What is God's priority in the world? It is the church, right? Jesus didn't die for the United Nations or the government or for South Africa or for the United States or to bring world peace. His focus is on his people. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things in history were worked for the good of his people. So I was watching a clip of R.C. Sproul and he says that he says that history, this period in history is what history was created for in the first place. It's not as if things happened suddenly, but there was a long period of preparation throughout the Old Testament where God was preparing the world for the coming of his son in the incarnation. So that's what R.C. Sproul's right. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, and that is how we believers need to view every detail of history when we read about it. History books will always look at history from a certain perspective, whether it's from a Marxist perspective, so oppressor and oppressed, or from a capitalistic or socialistic one, uh, the haves and the have-nots, or a racial or a racial perspective, right, from the viewpoint of slavery or different ethnicities, or a feminist perspective, whatever the case may be. We have to make sure that we look at history from God's perspective. You've probably heard of the, uh, you've heard people saying, make sure you are on the right side of history, right? But really what should be said is make sure you are right with the God of history, right? What matters is if you are with Christ or against him. So when we see countries fighting, when you see civil wars and terrorism, and persecution, political tensions, na nations rising, nations rising, nations falling. We know for certain that God is building up his church. That's why these things are happening. In many ways, we never understand. In our lifetimes, we might never see what God is doing. If we were living during the time of Alexander the Great, we wouldn't understand why God is allowing these things to happen, right? Why are they going the way they do? Why is he letting some man invade and take over all of the known world and force his culture and his way of life on them. But 300 years later, and it all makes sense. Now we see, oh, God was preparing the way. God was working it for the good of his people, right? But God is always working it for the good of his people, regardless of what's happening. God is sovereign and in control. So, in conclusion, Alexander the Great conquers the world. Greek culture and the Greek language spreads. Preparing the way, preparing the world for the spread of the gospel. So, any questions there? Just pausing to see if we're all on the same page. 
No, okay, great, moving on swiftly. So Alexander dies at the age of 33. Um, apparently he died from malaria. So a mosquito killed the most powerful man in the world, which is ironic, right? It's a reminder of who is really in charge. Um, and so when we looked at the book of Daniel, the prophecy said that Alexander the Great's kingdom, right? His kingdom would be divided into four, into four heads. And that's exactly what happens. So read Daniel 8 verse 1 to 8 for that. Alexander's kingdom is divided into four empires, which are then led by four generals who had served under him. Two of these empires are significant for us. One is called the Seleucid Empire and the other is called the Ptolemaic Empire. So Israel is, remember it was conquered by Alexander the Great. And so Israel falls under the Ptolemaic Empire. And these two empires, the Seleucids and the Ptolemaics, they share a border, but there's always fighting between them. Eventually, the Seleucids win and they gain control of Israel. And so they, con they try to continue the whole process of Hellenization. They try to get rid of Jewish culture and Jewish worship of God. The Seleucids want more polytheistic worship. They want God's people to worship many gods like Zeus and Hercules and all those, other, all those other gods, Greek gods. At this point in time, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes is the king of the Seleucids. So you've heard of the abomination of desolation that you might have read about in the New Testament. Antiochus Epiphanes did that, right? He set up an altar to the Greek god Zeus inside the Jewish temple and he would sacrifice, he sacrificed a pig on it, right? It's, it's blasphemous. It's an, abomin it's an abomination. He also gets a Jewish priest to go to a synagogue to offer sacrifices to other gods. So this is in the year 167 BC. And so whilst this priest is going to offer sacrifices to these Greek gods, a man named, uh, a guy named Metatias, Metatias, actually, sorry, Metatias, he sees what's going on, right? He sees the, the blasphemous, uh, idolatrous worship going on in the temple and he's enraged and he goes and he kills the priest and then he kills the soldiers and the troops of Antiochus Epiphanes who were working with the priest. So Metathias starts a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. He sparks a revolt among the Jews, but he dies a year later. And so his son takes over and then he continues the revolt. His son's name is Judas Maccabeus, right? Judas Maccabeus. Some people say Maccabeus. Um, and the revolt is called the Maccabean Revolt. And... The Jewish people, through this revolt, they pretty much regain their liberty. They become free. And Judas's family are the heroes, right? And they become the rulers of Israel and they rule for a long time, up until the time of the Romans when Herod comes in, right? So uh, Judas and his family are heroes. At this time, remember, remember, Judas is a good name still. It's not, hasn't been tainted by Judas Iscariot. And so um, Judas Maccabeus' family they take over a lot of things. They become kings and they become priests. And it is during this time period, it is during their reign that you get this fracturing of Judaism, right? There's a split among the Israelites. Before, you know, the Jewish people, they were one. They were like, okay, we are the Israelites. We are God's people. But now during this time, Judaism as a whole fractures and people split into different groups. Think of it as denominations. Now you have people splitting off and becoming, going into the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
And then there's a third group called the Essenes. So I think we know the first two, but there's a third group called the Essenes. The Pharisees are the ones who hold on to the orthodox or traditional view of the law, right? The Torah. So they were concerned about the law and obeying God. So the Pharisees, they wanted to be faithful to the word of God. At least that's what they claimed. By the time we get to the Gospels, the Pharisees are not good. But at first, they were, they were like the Puritans. They were committed to, the, to faithfulness to God. You know, they defended the scriptures. Um, they held them as authoritative, as good, and they should be obeyed. So one of the kings in the land about 100 years before the time of Christ, he oppressed the Pharisees a lot, right? He oppressed them during his life. And then on his deathbed, he tells his wife, look, uh, I feel bad. I've done wrong things by oppressing the Pharisees. So when he dies, his wife went to the Pharisees and he said, look, uh, he, he did you guys wrong. You can do whatever you like to his body. And the Pharisees, they were wise. They wisely said, look, it's all good. It's fine. We won't do anything to his body. And that made the queen happy. And so they, they gained favor from her and the royalty. And then from that point on, the Pharisees became a political force because they were linked with royalty and the governing bodies. So they became a more powerful, they became more powerful in society. They had political and state power on their side. They became influential people. They became powerful in society because of their connections to the monarchy. The other group, the Essenes, um, they were hardcore, right? They were the fundamentalists of their day. So what they would say is, you guys are all heretics. Everyone is heretics. We have the truth. We have the truth and we hold on to it, right? Everyone else is wrong. We are right. And they even isolated themselves. They moved out into the wilderness, into the desert, and formed what was called the Qumran community. The Qumran community. Uh, does anyone know why that is significant and famous? Um, okay, that, I think that one's a bit difficult. So I'll just give you guys the answer. The Qumran community is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, Right. So you might have heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, you might not know what it is. That's fine. Basically, in the 1950s, a young boy, a shepherd, he follows a goat, right? He's, he's, he's shepherding the flock and then a goat goes astray. And so he follows this goat. The goat runs off and he gets to these caves. And so the boy takes a, a rock and then he throws a rock at these caves and then he hears the cracking of ceramic. So obviously he's like, okay, I'm throwing this at a cave. Why am I hearing pottery break? So he goes in and investigates and he finds a pot containing leather and papyrus scrolls that were nearly 2,000 years old, right? So this happened 70 years ago. And he finds all these scrolls and these are what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's Jewish documents which also include manuscripts or basically pieces, copies of the Bible, Right? So it has copies of all, all books of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. So it's the Bible. He finds Bible, the Bible and commentaries on some of the books. And these were written by, so the Bible were from the Essenes and then the commentaries were also written by the Essenes. So that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. That's why the Essenes are quite famous as well. The third group is the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees, they were, they were the liberal elites. So the, the, the Sadducees, they were liberal in their theology um, and they were like a liberal aristocracy. They were elite. So they were very sophisticated. They were very wealthy. 
the Sadducees only hold to the first five books of the Bible, which is the Torah, and they deny the rest of the Old, Ten- the, the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to the Sadducees, that is the only Bible. Everything else, all the prophets, all the, all the uh, wisdom literature, they deny that. On top of that, they deny the supernatural. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in supernatural events. And they even deny the resurrection, right? You'll see that come out in, in some of the books we look at in the New Testament. So they don't believe in the resurrection. And they are very similar to today's liberal theology, theologians. They don't believe in the supernatural. That's the main thing. So <clears throat> the Essenes are, if you compare the Essenes and the Sadducees, they're kind of like on the opposite spectrum to each other. The Essenes, uh, they are the hardcore fundamentalists. They went and formed their own community. And so before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the earliest manuscripts were from 980, right? 900 years after the death of Christ. So when that little boy found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were from a thousand years earlier than those, than those manuscripts, right? They were, they were from a, around the year 100 B.C., Obviously, people wanted to check and verify that the scriptures were actually, you know, not changed. People always say, how can we know? Uh, uh, how can we know? You know? We need to verify the scriptures. Well, when they put the Dead Sea Scrolls and the newer copies together, they were basically identical. right? Whatever changes there were, uh, they were not changes to major doctrines or anything like that. It's just very small changes to the odd preposition and stuff like that. They used the, the word we instead of us, right? So it was a wonderful discovery to see that God had preserved his word, like he said he would. There were also other writings from the Essenes, writings by them, which show that the Essenes, they thought they were the chosen eschatological people of God, which basically means that they interpreted all of scripture as applying to them. They saw themselves as the end times people of God. We know that they were not because firstly we are here. And it happens all the time, right? Generation after generation, people believe that the Lord is coming back in their time, right? Uh, we believe the Lord is coming back in our time. We are the end times people. That, that has been going on and on and on. So that's a summary of what is going on in Judaism at that time, at that point in time. That's where we get these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes from. And that's where they spring up from. And that's what they believe, right? So any questions on that? Are there okay? So, just a question on the chat. Boom is asking, Are there still Sadducees today? I've never heard of people believing only the first five books, and if so, what is that religion called? I think within Judaism, there is a sect of that, but I'll, I'll, I'll get more into modern day Judaism in a few, so I think I'll, I'll properly answer that just now. Um, okay, so uh, moving on to uh, back to the empires, right? So Daniel's vision, there was what? There was, we've seen the Babylonians and then came the Medo-Persians and then came the Greeks, Alexander the Great, he brought that about. But now we get to the Roman Empire, right? As you know, of the Greek Empire comes the Roman Empire that is on the rise. So in the year 63 BC, Pompey, Pompey is the Roman general and he goes into Jerusalem. He conquers Jerusalem, right? So the, remember the Jews had had their freedom after the Maccabean revolt, but now the Romans have come in and they've taken away that freedom they've conquered. So at this time, he goes in, he, he, he conquers Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, but
but he's not impressed with the temple because there are no statues, right? He's like, okay, what is going on in this, in this temple? What is the point of it, you know? And so he leaves. But at this time, there is no emperor in Rome. Rome at the time was a republic. So there was no emperor and they had these checks and balances put in place so that there would never be an emperor or a dictator, right? It was supposed to be a republic. It's supposed to be ruled by the people. And it worked. It worked for hundreds of years. Rome was a republic for 500 years. They had a senate, which was this body of people that made decisions in governing. People would be voted into the senate. Mostly, mostly those who were rich and famous would be voted into the senate, and they would govern the country. But around this time, around this time in 63 BC, things start to change in Rome. There was a man named Tiberius. Tiberius was a leader in the army. He was a young guy. And the Romans, they were fighting in Spain, right? They were at war in Spain uh, against some Spanish tribes and they were losing. They were surrounded by the enemy. So Tiberius, he goes and he makes peace with the Spanish, right? And he promises them that the Romans would never ever again attack the Spanish if they let them go free. So Tiberius made peace with them and they agree. And then in doing this, Tiberius saves thousands and thousands of his men's lives, right? Because if they fought, they would have lost. So when he comes back to Rome, he's welcomed back as a hero by the working and the lower class because it's their sons, it's their husbands, it's their fathers who have come home from battle alive. So he's a hero to the common people. To the Senate, though, to the governing elite, he's a coward. And he should have rather died than to make peace with barbarians. And so they cancel, they go behind his back and they cancel the agreement that Tiberius had made with the Spanish. Tiberius is not happy about this and he says to them, we gave them the, the word of Rome, we gave them our word, right? Doesn't the word of Rome mean anything? But the Senate doesn't care about that, right? They end his military and his political career, but the common people support him, they love him, he's very popular. And so the Senate have him killed, they have him assassinated. And that assassination becomes the catalyst. It's the spark in the fight between the common people and the, against the elites. The system in Rome being a republic is now no longer working as it did for hundreds of years, right? The Senate are becoming richer, but the working class is becoming poorer. So naturally, there's this resentment building and fighting breaks out. It's during this time or a little bit later, just after this time, that Caesar takes over as an emperor. So you guys have heard of Caesar. Caesar was the first of the emperors. Caesar is, he's a general, so he's an army general, right? He's a seasoned fighter. And he sees that the Senate is corrupt. There are problems in Rome. And he says, the only way this can be sorted out is if I'm in control, right? That's what he says. So just know that at the time, there was a law that said that the Rome the Roman army, the army could never go into Rome. So whenever the army was out at battle, um, as soon as they were done fighting and they came back, there was a river called the Rubicon. And the Roman army had to disband by the river, right? They had to like take off their weapons and uh, put away everything and then uh, put all that stuff down. And then they were allowed to enter Rome. So they were never allowed to enter Rome as a standing army. They would disband and go, go back to their normal lives as farmers or potters or blacksmiths, whatever. So the Roman army could never march into Rome, right? So if you, were, if you were there back then, if you went into Rome, 
you wouldn't find many soldiers because Rome was just for citizens. But Caesar, in the year 49 BC, he takes the army and he crosses the Rubicon. And that is a big deal, right? It's the event that changes Rome forever. It becomes a point of no return. Um, he, marches, he marches on Rome with his army. And when he gets to Rome, it is totally empty because people are now scared. You know, they fled. Everyone is gone. So the city is empty. And what he does is he takes the money out of the temples. He takes all of the silver. He takes all of the gold. And he uses that to fund his army. So the Senate have also fled for their lives because he's going to come for them first. What the Senate does is they bring Pompey. So it's another guy. You might have heard his name. Pompey. It's called Pompey the Great. They bring him out of retirement to fight Caesar. So Caesar and Pompey, they end up fighting in Turkey. Uh, it's called the Battle of Derachim. And Pompey, Pompey actually beats Caesar, right? So the Senate kind of it wins. And Caesar goes on the run. He runs away. He flees because he's been defeated by Pompey. But Pompey says, you know what? No, let him go. Let's not pursue him. He has no, he has no supplies. His men have no food and water. So they will desert him. He will die in the wilderness. Just relax. Right? That's what Pompey tells the Senate. But the Senate are pressuring Pompey because it's costing them money each day that says that Caesar's alive. So they tell Pompey, listen, we don't want you to wait. Attack this guy. Finish him off. And so against his will and against his best judgment, Pompey attacks Caesar. Right? This is, this is the second battle now. It's called the Battle of Pharsalus. But Caesar outsmarts him and he beats him. Because Caesar, Caesar, even though he was vastly outnumbered, he was a great war general. And he had veterans fighting on his side. And so he wins. Pompey realizes that he's lost the battle. He puts on civilian clothes, normal people clothes. And then he runs. He flees all the way down to Egypt. And when he's in Egypt, he tries to reassemble another army. But eventually he's found out and they kill him in Egypt. And... I think it's 44 BC when Caesar is made the emperor of Rome, right? So he's the first emperor. Rome is no longer a republic. Now it's ruled by this one guy, Caesar. So what, end, what ends up happening to Caesar? He gets murdered by the Senate. So the Senate actually still manages to kill him, right? They assassinate him. But it's not the end of emperors. From then on, there's emperor of the emperor of the emperor. So why is all of this important? Well... Contextually, the rise of emperors at the time of Christ is a clash of God, a clash of gods. That is what's going on. The next emperor is going to be Caesar Augustus, and he serves for a long time. And Caesar Augustus, he was actually quite a great leader. He brought peace and prosperity to the Roman Empire. He seemed to be a fair leader. You know, he didn't live a proud, extravagant lifestyle. So the people started to deify him. Right? They made him out to be a god. They said Caesar is a god. And that is where the whole thing starts to come about that an emperor is a god or that he is a son of God. So when you're reading, the, say, the Gospel of Mark, because the Gospel of Mark is for Gentile audiences, the phrase son of God, to me and you, that's, that's Jesus, right? But to the Romans at the time, the son of God is Caesar. It's the emperor. So here is another man, Jesus claiming to be the son of God, you know, so really it sets up, it's a clash, you know, it sets up the tension. Which son of God are you going to follow? Who is the true son of God? And we'll see that more clearly when we look at the gospel of Mark. So, so far we've looked at the Greek language, we've looked at Judaism, we've looked at the Roman Empire and the political situation there. 
but what about the 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 philosophies at the time you know what was going on there what did the people believe what were the what was the common man uh what and what was his worldview you know because greek philosophy had been very 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 influential right as greek culture spread so that so did greek philosophy right if you do um what's it called uh psychology or something uh adversity you probably know these guys you know your plato's aristotle's whatever because they've been that influential that we're still learning about them today so at the time um the most common philosophy was a one called middle middle platonism platonism right and it comes from plato greek philosophy and religion is incredibly complex and this is because remember remember what paul says what do the greeks seek after he says the greeks seek after wisdom um they seek after something that is esoteric something that is abstract you know the more complicated it is the better it is right it's that higher understanding uh, mentally on another plane it's like if you're the only guy who understands it then that's it you know because esoteric it's the kind of wisdom that only few will ever understand so it must be true we're so clever and our books are so difficult to understand and sophisticated and intellectual and so when you come with a simple gospel it's foolishness to them isn't that what paul says and yet you and i know that the gospel is the most profound sophisticated thing in the world but because a little child can understand it the greeks reject it they reject it right the jews on the other hand they seek after power they seek after a sign but again to the jews uh and you can see you can also see the same thing with with muslims interestingly since judaism uh since judaism and uh islam they are semitic tribes right they they share the same language they same they share a lot of the same culture uh if you think about it the muslims to them it's the most ridiculous thing that god would die on a cross that is rubbish how can god die right that is not powerful so it can't be true you know we need a powerful god a god of power and it's the same thing it's the same for the jewish mind that's not right you know it can't be that god died we we are looking for a sign we are looking for power we're looking for a leader a savior who will come and conquer who will come and defeat the romans that's what they're thinking but the greeks are looking for secret knowledge and uh, an almost unattainable wisdom and so plato has had massive influence on christianity and so has aristotle especially in the roman catholic church plato what he's famous for is the teaching on forms what's called the teaching on forms for example he always he always looks at the form of chairs now what you're sitting on at least what i'm sitting on right now is a chair right this thing is a chair we say this is a chair that's a chair the what you're sitting on is a chair and yet they are different right you get a chair with four legs you get a chair with three legs you get a chair with one leg like a barstool you get chairs with a back you get a chairs a chair with no back so tell me what a chair is you can't say a chair has four legs you know no they don't some do some don't but they're all chairs so then how do you define a chair so plato would say there is ultimate chairness right there is a chairness in the spiritual sense that is the perfect form right and this is not just this is and so that I'm using the example of chairs but this is on everything chairs tables a plate a glass a wheel there is the perfect form of it in the spiritual 
but we are in the material. And so the logical conclusion is that the material form is less than the spiritual form. If you think about it, you can see how that would influence Christianity because there is ultimateness when it comes to God, right? There is the perfect form, so to speak. And the spiritual world is more real than the material. But this philosophy moves into a form of Gnosticism, which ends up teaching that matter is bad, right? Matter is bad and spirit is good. That is Gnosticism. Spiritual is good, right? Physical, material, it's bad. So saying matter is bad goes in two ways. And we'll see how the writers of the epistles deal with him. The one is it goes into we need to deny the flesh because it is bad. It is evil, right? And that is what's called asceticism. And Paul deals with that in the book of Colossians. Uh, denying self, touch not, taste not, handle not. Asceticism takes it to the extreme and it's not a good thing. It also comes up, uh, it also comes out in the denial of Jesus' incarnation, right? Because Jesus reincarnated in the... So First John, First John deals with that because you are here, uh, you are a person who has grown up in Greek culture, you constantly hear matter is bad, matter is bad, only the, the spiritual is good. So you need to escape your body and get to the spiritual. And here someone tells you that God has become flesh. And it's kind of unthinkable because flesh is something bad, right? And so John helps us to deal with that. He tells us, look, we touched him, we handled him. He really became flesh. You know, he didn't just appear to be flesh because those are, the, those are some of the arguments that the apostles had to deal with. Now, Christians also swing that way. Even to this day, you have some Christians who say that matter is bad. You know, sex is bad, music is bad, art is bad, movies, dancing, alcohol, all of it is bad. Anything physical is, is pretty much bad, and we can't wait until we are free from the physical. Um, it's not that popular anymore, but it'll come back in future generations. It's That's just how things tend to trend, right? Uh, Especially amongst Christians, we go from one, one extreme to the other. We tend to swing like that. The problem with that is people forget that God has richly blessed us with everything for our enjoyment. That's what First Timothy says. And the Bible warns of those who forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, right, from the physical. So, and they do that, what? They do that under the guise of holiness. It's legalism. It's being a Pharisee. But today we have, in our society, in our culture, we have the opposite problem. People are all about the flesh, right? We know all about indulging ourselves and feeding the flesh. We are all about food, entertainment, comfort. We're all about ourself and our self-image. Do whatever you, you want to do with your body, right? And yet, followers of Christ, what are we told? We are told to deny self. So the philosophy of Middle Platonism, it also teaches that there are intermediaries between the earth and the, and the divine and they call the inter intermediaries daemonion that is what we get that's where we get the word demon from today right um, but they wouldn't say that the intermediary the intermediaries are good or bad well they would say it's either good or bad so with us we hear demon and of course that's bad right but to the to the to the greeks back then it would be a good demon or a bad demon so Plato's philosophies, they teach these things, right? There's many others, but uh, I'm just mentioning or highlighting the ones that are relevant for us uh, that we'll see coming up when we read through the New Testament. 
Um, at this time, there were also what's called the Stoics, right? The Stoic, uh, we use that term, you know, if you heard someone has got a Stoic posture or he's a Stoic person, we use that term to describe a person who is very resilient, a person who can handle a lot, a person who doesn't show a lot of emotion, right? If you don't show feelings, you said to be Stoic. And the Stoics, they were very into reasoning and their view of God was called the Logos which will be very important when we look at John's gospel, right? They were much more involved in reason and suppressing emotion, right? Self-control was the greatest thing you could attain to them. They suppressed everything. and That was a goal for them. They were like monks. So that's, that's another group you'll come across. And then you get a group of people called the Epicureans. And these are the people who are after all the pleasures in life, Right. Um, even today, when we when do we use the word Epicurean? We use it when it comes to food, right? When we describe someone who likes good food and drink, they have an Epicurean taste. You know, uh, you go on social media, people have an Epicurean aesthetic, you know, always eating at the best places, dressed in the finest uh, fashions, etc., etc. So that's also another group of people who were quite common back then. There were also the cynics. They were called the cynics. And there were skeptics, so basically like atheists and, ex- and agnostics, right? And it's fascinating because when you put all these groups together, it's, it's, it's a whole mixture, but that culture is very similar to ours, right? See how there's a whole mixture, a whole lot of philosophies and religions going on. So, so as we go through the epistles, we'll pick up on the philosophies being challenged and confronted by the apostles, um, and so be on the lookout for that. Uh, uh, we, we'll make sure to pick it up. We'll make sure to link back the culture and how the apostles directly confront them. Because we tend to come to the New Testament, we get to a book and, okay, you open it. And there's instructions. But remember, those, are, those instructions are going in the grain of what's happening in the culture, what's happening in the church, what's happening um, in 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 the philosophical climate of the day, right? So we'll leave it there, we'll end it there. Are there any questions and comments? Uh, So there was a, uh, I remember Bume asked about the, are there Sadducees today? So it's, it's very interesting. I think, I think they're very rare to find. Probably you'll find them in Israel. Um, but Judaism has changed a lot. You know, I mean, nowadays it's just seen as being Orthodox Jew and non, non-Orthodox. But even amongst Orthodox Jews, it's very interesting because you will find that, um, for one, like a lot of Orthodox Jews actually don't read the Bible. Like they don't read the Old Testament anymore. They read teachings from rabbis. Right. So it's almost like you have your Bible, but you never read your Bible. You just read commentaries or not even commentaries, but like articles or um, um, blogs, you know, to do with Christianity as opposed to having your own Bible. So um, I can't remember like the, the explicit divisions or the different groups in Judaism, but uh, I don't think there's like an official group called the Sadducees, but they are definitely sects. And I think there's there's more like uh, I don't think it's like a denomination within Judaism to say that, but there are definitely Jews like who will who hold to that view, like only the first five books. But those are people just trying to be different.
from what I've read at least and what I've understood. So, yeah, that's that's my understanding of that. Um, Kyle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, hi there. So I just think I found it interesting how obviously we're going down these uh, different ideologies and philosophies uh, right towards the end, and it just shows you that there's no there's no new thing under the sun, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, social media and uh, these Elon Musk's or uh, whoever else, you know, thought leaders and influencers around the world will have you think that, you know, ideologies and, uh, you know, these new philosophies and things that they bring you up are new. Mm. But they're not. They're not. And um, it's ever so important, you know, for us as a church to, you know, be aware of that, you know, questions that we have about the church, you know, there's the creed, there's people that have gone before us to, you know, uh, your John Calvin's and, and Martin Luther's, you know, to um, sort of, uh, you know, light the path for us. And um, mm. that's, you know, inside the church and then, you know, outside the church, you know, we've got to be aware of these new things that that are creeping in. So it's interesting, man. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's the reason why... Um, church history is so important, right? Like you're saying, because uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, right? All these things, um, they were there beforehand. They just have different face, or we try to pretend that they're new. That's mainly because we don't know our history. We don't read that these things have happened before. So that's why it's such an important thing to know church history, because um, uh, like our friend is saying there, you a lot of the battles, a lot of the struggles, the fights that we have as a church today, they've happened before to the church. You know, the church has dealt with it in some way or another. All we have to do is just like figure out which battle or which category it falls into, you know. Um, so think of the the issues of today. There's, um, off the top of my mind, there's a lot of sexual perversion going on. But that's nothing new, you know. Um, as a church at Heritage, we're going through Second Corinthians, and we are seeing, uh, we see how that culture looks almost exactly like our culture, you know. And so we have a blueprint. We have believers who've gone before us who we can learn from, and um, use their wisdom to to fight. And going back to that R.C. Sproul quote, is the purpose of history, right? God has given us history right to the church like what matters is what god says and what has happened and how he's working for all of god's people we have history he's given it to us and we can use it so yeah and warren is saying in the comment section that the mission to mars started in the tower of babel 100 percent, 100 percent, with uh um you know the, the elon musk of that time so yeah um, any other comments uh, thoughts um Hey, Kaya. Okay, cool. uh, I just wanted to ask, what, what's your knowledge of modern Judaism? Um, what what types of groups are they? Is it only, are you only aware of, let's say, Orthodox Jews or, yeah. Just, just wanted to, your comment on, on Judaism today. Yeah, my, it's, yeah, to me, and that's only at a very high level, right? Like I only know of Orthodox Jews and non-Orthodox Orthodox. And even in my mind, I take it as like Jews who try to be serious about their faith, who actually try to, you know, follow the Old Testament. 
And I think there will always be, you know, Orthodox Jews because of like uh, some of the promises relating to, you know, ethnic Israelites going to the end of times. Um, and then there's there's everything else. So I see it like that. But as to the actual specifics, I'll actually get into them um, when we probably when we do. I think it's Mark's Gospel where no no that's a Gentile audience Matthew because Matthew writes to Jews right he writes to a Jewish audience so um, I'll I'll read up on that because my my knowledge as to the specifics of it it's 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 not really there but yeah so that's 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 all I have really to do with Judaism for now okay yeah. thank you for that and then. So by non-Orthodox Jews, what exactly do you mean? Um, are they just less serious than, than, than the Orthodox Jews? Or, or? Yeah, I mean, so uh, like Orthodoxy is just, you know, holding to the, the main original, basically, of that religion. So if you're an Orthodox Christian, you believe in the founding tenets, you know, the, the original shape of that thing. So an Orthodox Christian is someone who holds to the authority of Scripture, you know, Jesus Christ as God, etc., etc. And so Orthodoxy as pertaining to Jews are those Jews who try to live their lives the way you see the Jews in the Old Testament, right? So, you mean, you see Jews today, they, um, you know, they go to a synagogue. They don't have a temple anymore. They go to the synagogue regularly. They do um, sacrifices. They observe some of the um, Jewish holidays you know some of the events in the in the jewish calendar etc etc so that's that's what i mean by orthodox so yeah like basically trying to you know follow the bible the old testament essentially so yeah all right all right uh, thanks about, uh, okay so let me just uh, put in the last moment um i think it would be helpful also to look at um modern jewish Apparently, to my knowledge, I actually came to know this um, in recent years, okay, relatively recent years, um, I think around 2018, somewhere there, uh, where I found uh, that there are actually you know, Jews, Messianic Jews, who uh, believe in, in Jesus Christ and who hold to that, to that belief. And, and, and I was just wondering maybe if you might have, have some knowledge and what the view is in general of those Jews and, and, and all that, just just practically, because I, I think it, it would be useful for, for yeah everyone else to have that kind of knowledge, that they are actually Jews who believe in Christ, and not only who don't, who don't actually uh, you know, reject Christ as uh, you know, Messiah. So, okay, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great suggestion. I'll, I'll fit it into the material. So I've made a note, I'll put in my notes, and... I'll add it to uh, some of the books we go through where it comes up. So then it will be there. I'll, I'll make a mental note to include it. And just on that note, if you guys also would like to maybe um, discuss or know about a topic, uh, if you can mention it beforehand, that would be better because like, I can prepare some stuff for that. And yeah, so that's one suggestion. Then I'll definitely um, include in the material as well. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Awesome. Um, okay, there's a question from... Uh, Smog on the comments he says do you think Alexander the Great educated man under the mentorship of Aristotle was also influenced by scripture the prophecy in Daniel about one to destroy the Persians so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing do you mean like directly um, 
um, influence. Like maybe he read about it or he he, he heard it. Um, from what I've read, uh, I don't know. So, okay, yes, yes, actually, because, yes, because Aristotle and them, they were familiar with the scriptures, right? But as to as to Aristotle's view on, say, like the prophecies of Daniel, I, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't, I, I haven't, because I'm, I'm also actually not that familiar with Aristotle's actual teachings. I know, like, the, in general, but... Yeah, I mean, if you just look at, I think I think he was just motivated by, by his his hate and disdain for the Persian Empire. So they were hated. They were hated across the world because they were extremely cruel. Um, so I think it it might not even have been like, you know, Alexander, you you can be the one to you know. Uh, it's been prophesied that these guys will be destroyed, so you can be the one to go ahead and do that. Um, I don't think so. Um, I think it's a natural hate for like seeing, you know, opposition to your culture, to your, what's very clear about Alexander is how, how much he loved Greek culture. You know, he's all about Greek culture. That's why in his conquering, it wasn't just let us, you know, take over. It's let us spread it. That, that was his main devotion. That was his love. He was all about Greek culture. So, yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the case there. Okay, um, any other questions or comments? Comments and thoughts? Be keen to hear what you guys think. Okay, in that case, it seems like everyone is happy. So. Let me end it there.